welcome to Foothills Christian Church. If you're visiting with us on campus for the first time, we are so glad that you are with us. We don't care what state you came from, what country you came from, what language you speak. We're just glad that you're here. If you're watching online for the first time, we are glad you are here with us. And today we are going to celebrate Father's. And Father's Day is a day that we honor the critical role that fathers play, not only in the lives of their own family and their children, but society at large. Now, one of the most important things that you do as a father is you help children discover who they are. Now, I don't know about you, but... Um, uh, I'm not the kind of guy that like opens up a book and reads and then sits there, you know, with a cup of coffee and goes, man, that's my best thinking, right? I, I'm like, it usually happens after I've been driving, you know, you drive on the road and it's about that eighth hour into your driving and you're past the tired point, you know, and you're just kind of in that zone. And then your brain, it's like when I'm out working in the yard or some of my best theological moments of thinking happen when I'm grilling in the backyard. So without further ado, one of the things I do when I grill is I use our grill all the time. And as a matter of fact, I go through probably four tanks of propane in a year because I use it uh, almost every day. Uh, even in the wintertime, I'm trudging through the snow out there in the backyard. So now this is not my personal home grill. Uh, I got, I had the church get this grill for Roundup Sunday, you know, when we, we uh, grill, I don't know, a couple hundred pounds of tri-tip and pass it out. Boy, that's a party. That happens the first Sunday after Labor Day when everybody comes back. But uh, so we got this, we got two of these monsters. They're so big, you need two tanks. Now, one of the things I got to do before we jump into our, our parable today is I got to get this baby fired up and heated up because you want a hot grill when you're uh, grilling, you know. So um, I like to get this thing going and make sure I, there we go. She's up and running. Gotta love that baby. Okay. So as that gets heated up, I have found that when I grill, some of the best ideas that, uh, and concepts and perceptions I've ever had is this. And that is, as you become a griller and you do it a lot, the first thing you learn is that every meat is different, right? Every meat has to be prepped different. It's cooked at a different temperature, a different time. It doesn't matter whether you're doing fish or hot dogs or brats or steaks or sirloins or ribeyes or tri-tips or whatever. They're all different. And the first thought that that hit me is that that reminds me of my kids. Every one of my kids is so different, you know. They need different seasoning. They need different prep. They need different attention. But in the end, one of the most important things is, is that they all got to go on the grill, right? And that's where they cook. And that's what life does. So my job as a dad is to try to help prepare my kids properly so that when life cooks them, they come out savory and luscious as opposed to burnt to a crisp or raw, right? And that's what life can do to you. So being a father is very important. So what better parable to study in our series on the parables of Jesus and the parable of the lost son, okay? Now, to, in order to understand this parable, you really have to understand that it's a story about a father and two of his sons, okay? And that's appropriate on Father's Day. But 
you have to understand where Jesus told this parable. The context is really critical. The audience who heard it makes all the difference. Listen to chapter 15, the gospel according to Luke, verses 1 and 2. Now all the tax gatherers and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives or he eats with or associates with sinners and he eats with them. So what's the context here? There's a gathering. And in this society, this is a gathering that would rarely happen, okay? And that is, is that you had one set of people, you had scribes, and scribes are, were actual lawyers because so much of the legal stuff that happened, like the purchasing of land, they would write up deeds, uh, uh, inheritance stuff, contracts between families. Uh, these guys, the scribes, would write them up based on the covenantal Israeli or Jewish law, right? And then you had Pharisees, and Pharisees were like uh, professors. They were the teachers of the law. Okay, so these groups of people always associated with each other. They had their own classes, kind of like a professional elite you know, academic class. Then you had this, you, you have like this middle group of people. Then you have this other group of people who are way over here, tax collectors and sinners. These are people who had said, we've just given up on the law, given up on society. We're just going to do our own thing the best that we can. And interesting enough, they're all together. And so the scribes and Pharisees are criticizing Jesus, saying, look, you're hanging out with people you shouldn't be, and this discredits you. It shows that you don't understand how to honor and respect God so that we can enjoy the benefits of the covenant. And so Jesus tells them a couple of parables. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep. The next one is the parable of lost coin. And then he tells a parable about a dad and two sons. Let's read it while this baby's getting hot. Verse 11. Now, Jesus said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. <gasps> you can hear a gasp in that room. Now, I know you're not a first century person who lives in the Middle East, but just to give you an understanding of this culture, what this son is asking is over the top disrespectful. It's over the top. Because what he's saying is he's saying, Dad, I don't want you. I don't want anything to do with you. I just want your stuff. I wish you'd just go off and die. All of the scribes and Pharisees are like, oh, this is horrible. All the tax collectors and sinners are going, man, that hurts. I, I can understand that. You know? So everybody understood how over the top this request was. In their culture, what the father should have done at this point is he should have taken the son, dragged him out into the square in front of all the other families and all the other young men, and he should have beat his son with the rod. And the reason why is because the fathers were very austere, they were very, uh, very patriarchal, but very uh, reserved and dignified. They were the ones that were supposed to rule with an iron fist in order to keep order in society. And he should have taken this son out and beat him as a lesson to everybody else. And all the other fathers would have applauded that, right? But this is what's even more shocking, 
And this is what shocked the scribes and the Pharisees. Because the scribes and Pharisees use that very premise. You know what? We're not obeying the covenant purely. That's why we are under Roman rule. And we are not living in the material kingdom of God. We have occupiers here. Because we're not following the covenant. So that's what they're all expecting. And then Jesus, I think, blows their mind. Because guess what this father does? The exact opposite of punishment. It says, and he divided his wealth among them. The word for wealth here comes from a Greek word, which uh, is like bios. And so the actual meaning of the word is he divided his life among them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered together everything and went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods and the swine were, that the swine were eating, but no one was giving him anything. Well, what a fall from grace. Jewish culture, you're not allowed to eat pork and you're not allowed to raise pork. You're not allowed to touch or prepare pork or slaughter pork. So here he is, kind of the thing you're not supposed to do, feeding the pork. Now, when he came to his senses, and it's interesting, if you look at the original language, it says, when he came to himself. When he came to himself. It's kind of like this notion of he kind of came back to himself, who he really was. He launched a plan. He says, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and I'll go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, now he launches a little plan. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm going to come back to my dad's estate, but as a second class citizen, you know, teach me a trade, dad, I'll work. I, don't, I can't be your son anymore, but at least I'll eat regularly. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father then said to his slave. So the father doesn't even listen or respond to his appeal. He says, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Who would have the best robe in the house? Well, the father. Just take my robe and put it on him. And he says, put a ring on his hand. This signified, you're not a servant. You're not an employee. You're my son. Put sandals on his feet. And then bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to be merry. Now his older son, the older brother, was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be about. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. How interesting. His brother returns, and I can kind of understand his anger a little bit because the way things work there is if the father divided his life amongst them, you, we have to understand their connection to the land. And so all the wealth, your entire economic 
life, everything. The family business was tied to the land. And so two, what, in, in Jewish, what they would do is they would give a double portion to the firstborn and then the remaining portions to all the other kids. So if you had, let's say, four sons, you would split your property into five segments. The firstborn would get two, right? And then the other three sons would get the remaining Three. Does that make sense? Well, here you have two sons. So the first son gets two-thirds of the land, and then the second son would get one-third. But in order to give him such a large chunk of the estate, they, just, they didn't like buy him out. They probably had to give away some of their land. And that's painful. That hurts, especially if you're the, the, that son that stayed. So you can see why he's a little angry. And he says to his father, and this is what's really interesting. If you go back in verse 21, the prodigal son comes back and says, Father. So he addresses him with respect. But look in verse 29, what the older son, he says to his father. First of all, he doesn't go in, so his father comes out. And the second thing he says is he doesn't even address him, his father, respectfully. He just says, look. And that's called an emphatic negative in the Greek. And what that means is it's an insult. He says, look. He says, you need to listen to me. For so many years, I have been serving you and I have never disobeyed a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a kid, meaning a young goat, that I might be merry with my friends or have a party or celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, notice he's not his brother, he has devoured your living, your wealth with prostitutes. You then kill the fatted calf for him. Now, there's obviously contention over the fatted calf thing. And you might be reading this thinking, what's the big deal? Well, the interesting thing about this is in their economy, their agrarian culture, they had a lot of sheep, they had a lot of goats, but they didn't raise cattle very much. And a couple of reasons why. Cattle requires large tracts of land, large pasture to have large herds, right? They need a lot of room, a lot of water, and a lot of foliage. They have to have lots of grazing. So what happens is they would usually have just a very few, ca a very few cattle, right? And then what they would do is they would only slaughter it for a very special occasion. And the other thing you have to remember, there's no refrigeration, there's no freezers. They can't like cut it up, throw it in the freezer for later. So when you kill the thing, it's a monstrous, right? I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of pounds of meat on, on cattle. And so what you have to do is you would have to consume it all. And so they would usually save it for a very special occasion, like a wedding. They'd invite the entire village or town, have a massive party. And so he's like, they killed the fattened calf. This is the thing we've been saving forever. You know, we're saving this calf for when I get married and you kill it and feed it to your other son, who's not my brother anymore. And so his dad says to him, and listen to this, even though he insults his father, even though he's angry, his father doesn't rebuke him, but he entreats him with a term of endearment. He says, my son, my child, You've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry. We had to rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. And what was lost has now been found. What a great parable. 
to tell in a room filled with tax collectors, sinners, scribes, and Pharisees. You know, one of the things that I've always enjoyed about grilling is you got to wear a cool hat. <laughs> got to have the hat, man. Okay. The other thing, too, is that I, I always really, really, really like cooking up tri-tip. Now, a couple of things when you get your grill, you got to get it hot, especially if you're going to grill some tri-tip, right? You want to get it nice, roasty, toasty. The other thing is you got to make sure you, you, there's a lot of different ways to scrub it. If you don't have a, a little wire brush, you can always use like an onion, cut it in half. The other thing about it, too, that, um, that I like to do, though, is to get those really great lines on your meat, you know, is I turn it down. Uh, don't do this at home. But I use spray oil, and the reason why you don't do it at home is because it can flame up. So kids, don't ever do this. Moms, if, if your kids say, Dad's grilling, or I got the grill on, and I want the spray oil, just say no. Okay? But hey, I'm a grown man. So I like to live on the edge. The other thing is, is that I, I always, you know, a tri-tip, you know, is always great to throw. The thing is, is that if you buy it full like this, big old hunk, look at that meat. Isn't that gorgeous? That's a good looking piece of meat, you know. So we're going to throw that bad dad on there. And we are going to season it up just a little bit. I, you can use anything you like. I, you know, I mean, there's all some people just say just uh, garlic pepper is all you put on a tri-tip when you're grilling it up. And but I'm using um, uh, McCormick's Montreal steak and they did not pay for any sponsorship <laughs> in this. So we're going to get that bad dad going. And when you first are cooking tri-tip, I, I just feel you just got to go really hot on your fire, you know, because you want, you want that searing so it kind of keeps the juices in. The other thing, too, that I think is important is uh, my son got me this little deal that I really like, my oldest son, um, is uh, sometimes I'll cook with them, sometimes I won't, but today, in case you guys want some at the end, I'll just make sure that we are good to go. And you can put that thing in there, but there's one problem I have with that's this thing is that um, sometimes I'll get done cooking this thing and I'll have that little thing in there and I'll forget and I'll grab it with my hands and pull it out. So I, I've removed the skin on this finger a couple of times. And you know you have an issue when you do it more than once. So I think I need some counseling on that. Um, the other thing I've got here is I've got some chicken, you know, because uh, I'll tell you what, sometimes kids are like tri-tip, you know, they got to get cooked hot. You know what I'm saying? Life, the way they live, the way they approach life, you know, maybe their type A personalities are always going after stuff. They tend to run into a lot of walls in life, you know, so the, the fire of life is cooking them hot, so to speak. You know what I mean? And so that happens. Now, some people are like chicken, though. Some kids are like chicken. And the thing about chicken that I've always found fascinating is that you always want to cook it enough, right, to kill all the toxins and so forth in it. But, uh, man, everybody overcooks chicken. And it's like eating rubber, you know? I mean, you just sit there so tough. 
The best chicken, you know, is when it's cooked just perfect. You get it to that right thing. Now, most people use like a you know, temperature gauge. They use this. I do it by feel, which is pretty successful, but most people would say the most inaccurate way to do it. But hey, I like living on the edge. Okay, so this is the beauty of steak seasoning because one of the ways to get chicken to not taste like chicken is put steak seasoning on it. That's one of my ideas. Now, the other thing, too, is uh, what's, what's a barbecue without a brat, right? You got to have brat. But the thing about a brat is, is that brats are so juicy, right? Man, a good brat, when you, when you bite into it, all those juices come out, leaking. Man, I love that. I just love the flavor of a really good brat. But the problem is when you cook a brat, right, a lot of times you cook them too hot because you're cooking them like with steaks and stuff, and they, they, they swell up and they burst, and then all the juices drain out of them. So sometimes you'll have a brat, though, that's just charred all the way around, right? And then, of course, you know, you got hot dogs. You, you know what? You got to have some hot dogs. And the thing about hot dogs is that, if you're, you know when you go to the ballpark and they always seem to boil hot dogs, right? So they're always in water and they pull them out. I'm like, that is not a hot dog, right? So you got you to gotta have a hot dog on a grill to get the hot dog flavor. Because, and, but one of the problems is, is that if the grill's too hot, right, they're black around and all the ketchup and mustard in the world isn't going to cover up that taste. Right. So I always put my hot dogs up just a little bit, you know, to kind of let them cook real nice and slow when everything else is going on. So so we're just going to get this baby and we're just going to let it fry up. And oh, there we go. I got to keep it moving around because we used um, uh, we use this grill for a big uh, barbecue for the school with hamburgers. So there's still a lot of hamburger stuff down there. I don't want it to flame up. So I'll make the. Uh, fire extinguisher guys a little nervous. You know, they'll pull the pin. And we don't want that, okay? All right, so we're going to get that going. There are three characters and one lesson in the parable of the lost son. The first character is the father. I find what's so fascinating about this, this character is how much Jesus redefines who God is almost to a point of radical difference. You see the scribes and the Pharisees and even the tax collectors and sinners, they all had a vision of God, an attitude towards God of being a very austere, reserved, ang or not angry, but ready to judge God. His job was, if you fulfill the covenant, I'll protect and provide, right? I will deliver your enemies into your hand. I will bless your land. But if you don't, you're in trouble. So what happened is so many people, the Pharisees, spent all their time teaching how we need to follow the covenant better. We need to do better, 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 right? Then you have uh, the prodigal son. He represents all the people who said, no matter how hard I try, I can't do that. I just give up. I want to go my own way and discover my own self. I want, I need to shed all these societal expectations and discover who I really am. And then the, uh, yeah, the older son, he represents the scribes and Pharisees. Like we're going to follow the rules. We always follow the rules. And that's way, that way we always get what we want. 
So we have three characters, the father, the younger son, and the older son. But Jesus redefines the father in a way that you can never imagine. Because they had such an austere picture of who God was in this patriarchal society, they, I mean, just to give you a flavor of it, they wouldn't even use his name when they talked about him. God's actual name is Yahweh, okay? It's considered a tetragrammaton. And what does that mean? Well, it's a fancy word. It just basically says it's four letters of the Hebrew uh, language that basically means I am, I exist, I am reality, okay? But they would never say that, ever. The only time that that name was ever spoken is when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year to uh, spread blood on the altar in atonement for the sins of the nation. And he would invoke the name Yahweh. All other times they always said his titles, which were Elohim, Jehovah, or Adonai. And these are titles. They're not actual names. But Jesus comes along and he says, God is like a father. Do you know Jesus called God father more than anybody else in the Bible? And second of all is what was really shocking is that when this second son demands his inheritance, this father capitulates. He actually says, okay. You know, it's interesting, dads, when you're raising kids, some of your kids are, dad, tell me what to do. I want to do it. And then your next kid is, don't ever tell me what to do, you know, and I'm going to do the exact opposite. So that's why you go and say, I don't want you to clean your room. I don't want you to mow the lawn, you know? And then they're like, oh, how does that work? So your kids are so different, you know? They're like different meats. And you're thinking to yourself, how in the world, how in the world do I cook them or prepare them for the life that they're facing? I mean, being a parent is not an easy thing, is it? It's hard, especially when your kids are so different. And this father is not unlike you. So what does Jesus do? He says, God allowed the disrespect. God, the father allows us to suffer the consequences of our choices. Oftentimes people ask me questions like, why doesn't God come down and fix all the problems? Why doesn't God come? If he really loved us, wouldn't he do that? I go, well, I don't know, because where does most of the evil in this world come from? Almost nine, over 90% of it. Where does all, all of our own problems come from? Our own choices. Comes from our own choices. And regardless of how disrespectful we are to God, regardless of how destructive our choices might be, God, our father, like this father in the parable says, okay, you can go your way. Now, why would he do that? I think it's because it points to his very heart. And his, his heart is this. I'm not interested in controlling your life like a pawn. I'm, I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in is you being with me. You need to come to your senses. You need to come to your true understanding of who you really are. So Jesus in this parable shows us that God's heart is redemptive in nature. 
So when that son starts to come back, he sees him a long way off and he does one of the most undignified things. In that culture, kids ran, women ran, men, particularly patriarchs, never gathered up their robes, bared their legs, and went running down the street. They just didn't do that. And yet that's what this father did. In, in the actual language, it says he didn't come up and slap him on the back. You know, it says that he grabbed him around the neck. So he came up and, you know, like dads will do, they grabs his son around that neck, you know, and pulls him in. And then he puts a ring on his finger, best robe on him, and they celebrate. You see, Jesus is saying that God's heart is redemptive in nature. He wants us back. But what's interesting is he let the son go. And when the son was living in another country, he didn't go and what? Beg him to come back. He had to come to his senses. Sometimes, you know, if you have a, uh, if you have a tri-tip kid, the hardest thing to do in the world is let him sit on that hot flame for as long as you need to. Most people, when they cook tri-tip, they take it off way too early, right? And you know why they do that? Because the outside is usually charred. And they're thinking, oh, it's got to be done. But the inside isn't cooked yet. Sometimes when you have a kid that lives that way, dads, it's hard. It's hard to let them, like God lets us, learn from life in their own way. Now, I'm not suggesting you let your five-year-old take the car and go get a candy bar. I'm saying, but when they get 18 and they go out, it's hard sometimes. But have the heart that God has for you, that he's redemptive. You see, the second son, let's not diminish what he did. Basically, he saw his dad as a means to an end. He, he said to his dad, I don't want you, I just want your stuff. That reminds me a lot of people today. There's a lot of people out there, they don't want Jesus, they don't want God, they don't want Jesus, the, our Lord and King, who created the world in which we live, created love, created beauty, created liberty, freedom, sexual intimacy, family, friends, honor, loyalty, virtue, redemption, and forgiveness. Our world doesn't seem to want that anymore. They just want his stuff. Paul has a really interesting phrase in the first chapter of Romans. You know what he says? He says, people will no longer worship the creator, but they worship the creation. They don't want God. They just want his stuff. They want the material world. They want the wealth. They want sex. They want all the sex they can get in any way, shape, or form. They want to be emotionally selfish. They want what they want. But when you live that way, you find yourself really far from home where your soul was meant to be. Now, what I find really fascinating is the older son and his response, okay? I think the older son is a lot like bratwurst, right? And that is, you got to cook it slow so that it doesn't burst, right? And so a lot of times what people will do 
And firstborns tend to be more like this. Not all the time, but sometimes. It's like, I'm going to follow all the rules. Now, not all firstborns are this way. Some are, but I'm going to follow all the rules. Because if I follow all the rules, that's how I get what I want. So I think that Jesus told this parable in order to represent the older brother with the scribes and the Pharisees in the room. They're the religious people. They're saying, you know, if, I'm, if we follow the rules, then God's required to keep his end of the contract and give me what I want. This is what I find so fascinating, is that the younger son and the older son had drastically different lifestyles, but they had the same attitude towards the father. The younger son said, Dad, I wish you'd die so I could get your stuff. The younger son said, "What more important to me is your stuff, so I'll follow all the rules. I'll be so good that you have to give it to me. So similar to his brother, he doesn't want the father, he wants the father's stuff. See, that's what I find so fascinating because this is what the father says to him when he's entreating them to come home. He says this, verse 31, my son, my child, you are always with me. He's almost saying, you know, isn't the point of being in the family and living on the estate and working together, isn't that you get the stuff? The point is, is that we're doing life together. We are to be together. We are to, as fathers, there's going to be good years. There's going to be bad years. There's going to be plentiful years. There's going to be lean years. We're going to have tragedies. We're going to have the things we've got to fix. And we're going to have glorious times together. That's not the point. The material stuff or the land, or it's us together. Father and son, you're always with me. And that leads us to the final lesson. The lesson of this whole parable is that Jesus was saying, none of you get it when it comes to salvation. There's a group of people out there who are prodigal sons. They think, you know what? The way to get salvation is to go out and discover myself, right? I want to go and I want to discover who I am and... Um, by pursuing what I want, my desires, my dreams. I'm going to get rid of religion. I'm going to get rid of tradition. I'm going to get rid of all those things because I'm going to go into a, a new dawning of the age of Aquarius and discover my true self. Today, what we've, we've done, and this is the deception in our culture that is so prevalent, is that we now believe that my identity is a result of my feelings and my thoughts and my desires of who I am and what I want. And what's so hard about this is that once you buy into that deception, anything can be rationalized. That, that's why we hear such crazy things happening in our society today, because your identity is whatever you make it up to be. And that, that's not a good thing because you end up not only being far away from home, but you lose yourself. You know, a long time ago, um, I heard a preacher saying, I was talking to a college student 
This college student came to me and said, you know what? This is back in the 70s. This is real popular with the hippocrat. I've got to uh, go discover my true authentic self. I need to strip away all of these socio-constructed roles that have been imposed upon me by my family and my community and my culture. And I need to strip them all away and discover my true inner self. And the professor said, or the preacher says to this kid, says, well, what if you're an onion? And see, that's, what, that's what's happening is that people are just, oh, I'm deconstructing my faith. I'm deconstructing culture. I'm deconstructing my family. I'm deconstructing all, all, everything that I am is just a socio-constructed role that's being imposed upon me. I'm the prodigal son. I'm going to go out, live lavishly, and whatever I want, whatever I desire, that's my true self. And that is a bunch of baloney. Because when you get on the fire of life, guess what happens? You get burnt to a crisp. Salvation is not saying who you are. Salvation is believing who God says you are and what you need. That's how, salvation is, I, it's not who I think I am, God. It's who you say I am and what I need. And he says, what you need is me, to be with me. And that's why Jesus said, I came to give my life a ransom for many so that you could now be, right, with God. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one does what? Come to the Father. No one connects to God except through me. It's not about the material world. It's not about the stuff. And until you understand that my soul was meant and designed to be with God, Salvation doesn't make any sense to you. And the, the other side of it is this, is there's a lot of people that grow up in Christian homes, and there's a lot of people that go up, they think, well, I'm supposed to be religious. They, they equate Christianity with moralism. If I just follow the rules and I do what's right, then God kind of owes me. But it's interesting is that sometimes it's our very act of being good that keeps us from connecting to God in salvation. What do I need to be saved from? I grew up in church. I always followed the rules. There's a rule out there. I'm like, let me know what it is so I can figure it out and follow it. But Jesus says, that's like a Pharisee. Because the key of the older brother phrase that hits me over and over again in this parable is when the father says to him, you're so angry, you're so upset, but you miss the point because the point is you've always been with me. It's about me. And in that moment, we understand the true nature of salvation. The true nature of salvation is that God says we need to be in relationship with him. And the only way that we'll ever come to that is when we fully embrace repentance. The prodigal son said, this is who I am, not here. I'll go back. And when he went back, the father said, what was lost has now been found. So the question really is, in my opinion, is you have to ask yourself, which son am I? Because dads, until you answer that question and truly connect to the Lord, you won't be able to become the father your kids really need. Because the thing that fathers give kids, I said this in the introduction, I'll say it again. 
What fathers give kids more than anything else, all research points to this, and the Bible's been talking about it for thousands of years, is you give your kids identity. This is who I am. Long, long, long time ago, when one of my kids was in, older kids was in middle school, there was a discussion about uh, they were having a conflict with the youth minister or something, and they were like, well, I want to go to a different church. I go, well, you know, I'm the senior pastor of the church. I'm not so sure how that would fly, but so we got in this conversation, and they said, well, you want me to do this because you're the pastor? I said, no. I said, our family, we're the peaks, and you know what the peaks do? We go to church together. That's what the peaks do. Whether I was preaching or not, whether I was digging ditches or not, that's what we do. This is a family thing, right? So let's work through this together as a family. And what that was is that was a statement of identity. And that is when you say, the rest of the world may live that way, kids. All your friends live that way, but guess what? Peaks don't because we're different. And that, dads, that's what you do, is you give identity to your kids because of who you are. That's why we celebrate you. That's why you're important, is because you help us know and understand God in ways that no one else can. Let's stand for closing prayer. And then if this baby's about ready, we'll, we'll chop her up and see what we've got. You know, the tri-tip's not quite ready yet. It's only at about 120. So unless you like it really, really rare, you know, you want at least 140. So Father God, we just thank you that on this day, we celebrate you as our heavenly father. And God, we want to honor all fathers as you work through them. Let them, God, embrace you and embrace who they are. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next Sunday.